Hello, I'm reading from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Thanks, Tanya, and good morning, everyone. My name is Murray. I'm the Youth and Young Adults Minister here at Shell Harbour City, and it's great to be here with you this morning as we speaking from God's Word as we prepare ourselves for Easter next weekend. Uh, Last weekend, uh, John helped us think about the Lord's Supper as we saw Jesus at his last supper show how the Passover feast was correctly understood to be pointing to him. John reminded us of the weightiness of what we do as we participate in the Lord's Supper. And I'm really glad we get to participate in that later on in our service today. But the supper is now over. And as Jesus moves ever closer to the cross, we see the weightiness of this moment for him as we come to the Garden of Gethsemane. But let's pray as we get into it. Heavenly Father, as we come to think about this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, help us to appreciate the price Jesus paid at the cross and understand his motivation and need to pay it. Help me to speak clearly and truly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, Sarah and I bought our first house. Uh, It's not that one up on the screen there, but you get the idea. Um, We're very thankful to have a loving family who generously gave us a large amount of money for a house deposit. We spent a few months looking for what was available and eventually found a great place that suits our family well and allows us to welcome people really well. The house certainly wasn't perfect. There was plenty of work we've had to do. But where I saw lots of renovations and costs and work, Sarah saw potential. And so we bought the house. And it really was a great decision. But it was certainly a costly decision. Not because anything went wrong, simply because buying a house is expensive. But despite the immense cost and worry and anxiety that I suffered through beforehand, I'm so thankful that we made that costly decision. Today, as we come to look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that he has a very costly decision to make. 
but knowing full well the cost, much more than my house cost. Jesus pays the price anyway, and I rejoice that he did. This morning, we'll begin by looking at Jesus' despair as we think about the cost that he paid. Then we'll think about Jesus' decision and try to understand what motivated Jesus to pay this enormous cost. And finally, we'll look at Jesus' disciples as they show us once again just why Jesus was the only one who could pay this immense cost. The despair, the decision, the disciples. Open again with me to Mark 14 on page 1,450. It's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus has just finished his last supper, and we pick up at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You can really feel the intensity of those words, can't you? Jesus is deeply distressed. He's troubled. He's overwhelmed. Sounds a little bit like me this week. as I've suffered through a cold uh, through the family while preparing to preach on this difficult passage. But unlike me, Jesus isn't someone who gets overwhelmed and distressed easily. If you've read through Mark or any of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you'll know that he's not someone who's easily overwhelmed. He slept soundly through the raging storm, and then after waking and calmly calling it to stop, he nonchalantly asks his disciples, why are you so afraid? Jesus has faced opposition and responded calmly. He's performed miracles, feeding thousands and healing all sorts of afflictions without even breaking a sweat. But now, in the words of Luke, Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There's something significant going on here. This is Jesus like we have not seen him before. So what is it that he's so distressed about? At first glimpse, that seems like a really silly question to ask, doesn't it? Because we know, and Jesus knows, that he's mere hours from his crucifixion. By the next morning, he will have faced an unfair trial, been beaten and flogged, and have had to carry his cross to the place where he would have nails driven through his hands and he would suffocate and die. But even knowing the pain and distress of the physical trials that lay ahead of him, I don't think we can see Jesus' anguish here as a result of these things. In his masterpiece work, The Cross of Christ, John Stott writes this, Is it physical suffering from which he shrinks, the torture of the scourge and the cross, together perhaps with the mental anguish of betrayal, denial and desertion by his friends, and the mockery and abuse of his enemies? Nothing could ever make me believe that what Jesus dreaded was any of these things, grievous as they were, or all of them put together. His physical and moral courage throughout his ministry had been indomitable. To me, it's ludicrous to suppose that he was now afraid of pain, insult and death. Stott goes on to show that throughout history there have been many examples of martyrs for different causes who have gone to their graves boldly for their particular cause. 
And Christian history shows many examples of those who have come to the hour of their death rejoicing that they have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So why is Jesus different? Where the martyrs were joyful, Jesus was sorrowful. Where they were eager, Jesus seems reluctant. Why? Certainly there is much more to Jesus' death and crucifixion than mere death and crucifixion. This is more than mere physical pain or mental distress. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross to bear the sins of the world. It's that spiritual agony that causes Jesus deep distress and sorrow. Look closely at what Jesus prays from verse 35. Going a little further, Jesus fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Jesus desperately asks his father to remove this cup from him. Frequently in the Old Testament, the image of drinking the cup has been used to refer to God's wrath, his anger at sin. In Job, speaking of the wicked, Job says, let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. And in Psalm 75, we read, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. And this same image is used in each of the major prophets. Each of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel use this image of the cup of God's wrath against humanity's sin as they speak about the cup being poured out on the nations, as well as hinting to a time where God will take this cup from them so that they will never have to drink it again. It is this cup that Jesus asks his father to take from him. The cup of God's wrath against human sin is what Jesus is about to drink. It is this cup that makes him sorrowful to the point of death. That is why he's distressed. Jesus despairs because he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath against human sin. See, Jesus' despair shows the price he's going to pay. It's an enormous and a weighty price. Three times in the garden he prays, take this cup from me. And yet, just a little later, as he leaves the garden in the hands of the Roman guards, and as Peter tries to rescue him, Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus knows the cost, the immense, weighty, enormous cost, and he makes the decision to pay it. But why? As we come to Jesus' decision, I want us to think through what motivates Jesus to continue his path to the cross as we witness his bravery, his submission, and his love in this moment. In J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, despite his aversion to adventure, gets taken along on an enormous journey through forests and mountains to steal a great treasure guarded by the dragon Smaug. As Bilbo approaches the tunnel to the dragon's lair, Tolkien writes, Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterwards were nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel, alone, 
before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. Similar to Bilbo, the decision that Jesus made in the garden to go to the cross was an enormous moment of bravery. But more than Bilbo, Jesus' decision was history-defining. True, it was the same decision he'd made when he rebuked Peter, when Peter had rebuked him for suggesting that he was going to die. And it was the same decision that Jesus had made when he was tempted by Satan in the desert. And it was the same decision he had made when he chose to step down from heaven, taking the very nature of a servant and becoming obedient to death. This moment in the garden is not a change of direction for Jesus, but a fulfilling of the direction he had chosen even before the creation of the world to take the punishment of human sin upon himself. For all of his earthly life, Jesus had been bravely choosing to go to the cross. And now as he nears that moment, he prays, yet not my will, but yours be done. What incredible bravery Jesus shows. But how are we to understand this interaction between son and father? Can we even really use the language of decision when we speak about the immutable, unchangeable God? I think we can here. Hebrews speaks about Jesus, saying, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus was fully human, like each one of us. Yet, and in his full and true humanity, He was able to choose his own way. But in submission to his Father, Jesus chooses now, as always, to do the will of the Father. We find Jesus' submission here so hard to comprehend because it's so far from our natural response, isn't it? Often we can feel like we're happy enough to submit to God's law, God's will. But so often that's only when it suits us when it doesn't require anything too uncomfortable. But if submitting to God endangers our happiness or our comfort, not only do we resist, sometimes we even consider God cruel that his will could possibly involve our discomfort or our struggles. But Jesus, again so unlike us, not only submits himself to God's will, but finds great joy in doing so. In John 4.34, Jesus had said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus loves to do the will of the Father. He will do whatever it takes to please his Father, to accomplish his work. But this great submission shown by Jesus and his perfect desire to please his Father has, for some people, opened God up to the accusation of divine child abuse. This idea of divine child abuse is not new, but recently has been suggested by a professing Christian author, Paul Young, in his book, Lies We Believe About God. If you haven't heard the thought before, basically it's the idea that the father is a malevolent, abusive bully for sending his son to face his wrath against human sin. Young writes... Who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser. Frankly, 
It's often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge or grant credibility in any sense. And rightly so. Better no God at all than this one. But the Bible is clear that the cross was God's plan. Acts 2 verse 23 says that Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. The idea of Jesus' sin-bearing death certainly originated with God. But as well as ignoring God's sovereignty, this divine child abuse theory fails to take into account God's Trinitarian nature and Jesus' character both as God and as man. See, as fully God, Jesus is not a third party in humanity's rebellion against God, but is himself the the judge taking the penalty of the accused. And as fully human, Jesus is not forced or coerced to go to the cross. Jesus chooses his father's will over his own comfort and bravely chooses to submit to his plan, to the plan which they in unity had devised before the creation of the world. Jesus' decision to go to the cross shows his bravery. It shows his submission to his father. And ultimately, it shows his love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. See, despite our rebellion against him, God loves us. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, God wills that all people be saved. And while the consequence of our sin is death, from Ezekiel 33.11, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn and live. And 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's will is that all people find forgiveness and right relationship with him through Jesus. But as well as being loving and patient, God is also holy and perfect. So our sin cannot simply be ignored. There is a just penalty to pay. This is why God in his mercy takes this penalty upon himself in the person of his son. See, Jesus' decision to go to the cross shows his motivation as he bravely submits to his father's plan out of love for sinners who deserve God's wrath. And as we come to look at the disciples, we see once again why they, and like each one of us, are in such desperate need and why we have no other way of being saved apart from Jesus' death for us. Like I mentioned earlier, we're now not long after Jesus' Last Supper, where Jesus had pointed to the significance of what he was going to do. Last Sunday, John helped us see the significance of that remembrance meal for us. But there were also a lot of important interactions around that dinner table. As well as revealing that Judas would betray him, Jesus had words of warning for all of his disciples. Look back to just before today's reading in verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus tells his disciples that each one of them will leave him, will fail him. As usual, Peter replies boldly, even if all fall away, I will not. And he goes on to insist emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. 
And all the other disciples said the same thing. See, the disciples are for Jesus. They're resolute in their support of him. They've given the last three years of their lives to follow him. Why would they stop now? But it doesn't take long for their self-confidence to be undermined as they're unable to even stay awake to support Jesus in his time of need. Three times, Jesus prays desperately to his father. And three times, the disciples' weaknesses are displayed as they cannot even keep their eyes open. See, it's not only Judas who lets Jesus down this night. Every single one of Jesus' disciples desert him. They all fail him. And this is the cream of the crop of the disciples, Peter, James and John. But it seems like old cream they have curdled. Despite their genuine desire to stick with Jesus, to never leave him nor forsake him, in the end, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I'm sure we all recognise that in ourselves too. Jesus may not have asked us to stay awake and pray at a particular time, but he does call us to resist temptation, to be self-controlled, to love our neighbour as ourselves, to seek first his kingdom. Sometimes in our sin, we don't want to do these things. But even when we genuinely desire to change, to grow in godliness, we find it so hard, don't we? We just seem to continue in our old habits and failures. As we rightly repent of our sin and resolve to live in a way that's pleasing to God, to avoid the sin that cost Jesus so much, we will all continue to fail. We will continue to fall into sin. Yet Jesus is not discouraged. His love for us is not diluted. Rather, like a parent whose love is drawn out all the more to their child because of the disease that afflicts them, so is Jesus' love for all of those who continue to fail and falter. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend of failures like you and me. Certainly, we must fight sin and do all we can to glorify God in our lives. But like the disciples, we will fail. But it's for these weak and failing disciples, for us weak and failing disciples, that Jesus chose to go to the cross. In the garden, we see the weight of the price that Jesus would pay at the cross as he took the cup of God's wrath for human sin. Jesus bravely chose to pay this great cost out of submission to his Father's plan and out of his love for sinners like his disciples and like each one of us who fail him and deserve the consequence that Jesus took for us. Jesus had to go to the cross. So in love, he bravely submits to his Father's plan and chooses to go to the cross for his disciples who cannot be saved any other way. I pray that we may all dwell on these things as we approach this Easter week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we see Jesus' despair in the garden, we recognise the incredible cost he paid by taking the wrath that we deserve for our sin. Yet, in love, he continues to choose the path of the cross for us. As we celebrate Easter this week, help us to watch and pray so that we will not fall into temptation. Help us also to rejoice all the more that Jesus went to the cross so we could be forgiven even when we fail. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen.